Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Macroeconomists give politicians permission to do stuff. They define the boundaries of what you're allowed to do. They went to fancy schools and they have fancy degrees and they're very smart and they can use numbers and they are numerate in ways that most of the rest of us aren't. And they say you may or you may not do X for reasons that politicians and voters often don't understand at all. That group of people who bestows permission in Washington, D.C. has basically over the last year and even over the last week said, do what you got to do. We're good. Spend money. That's your friendly neighborhood economics wonk, Brendan Greeley. He writes for the Financial Times. He's penning a book on the mighty dollar and he is ours for the hour. So stick around. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. We are on NPR One. I love that app. And on Spotify, another app that I love. We're also now in Northern Virginia and in D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. And starting this week in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM FM 103.7. Thank you for having us. Stay tuned for more station news. Joining me is Brendan Greeley, contributing editor for the Financial Times. Uh, Previously, Brendan was U.S. editor for the Financial Times Alphaville. Before joining the FT, he worked with me at Bloomberg Business Week, where he covered economics. And he was also on Bloomberg TV as a host and economics correspondent. He's worked as a staff writer at The Economist. And in U.S. public radio, Brendan Greeley is also an affiliate at the William R. Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. How are you, sir? I feel great after that really long introduction. I've done a lot of stuff. I'm quite old. It's great to have you on. And you're also a, 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 a an FCC spectrum wonk, if I remember correctly, but maybe that's a whole different <laughs> I world. was, but it was so long ago. How are you doing? I am doing great. I uh, um, I am. Here's, here's, here's why I'm excited right now. Janet Yellen, who's the pick for the Treasury Secretary by the President-elect Biden. That's exactly right. So Janet Yellen is the pick for the Treasury Secretary. Now, there's some discussion about whether she's progressive enough. I find this discussion silly, but at least let's 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 pretend I don't. Let's treat it in good faith. All right. There's a there there are several reasons why somebody on the left might be worried about Janet Yellen. And I think that there's a frame that we can take for this so we can understand sort of what's happening more broadly in the profession of macroeconomics. So forget that we're talking about the Treasury Secretary for a second. Forget that we're even talking about uh, policy right now. There is a culture of macroeconomists within Washington, D.C. that runs the entire place. So think about priests at the Holy See, right? When you look at Washington, D.C., it is impossible to make any kind of policy without first consulting a macroeconomist. They are everywhere. So the White House has two separate councils of macroeconomists. They've got the National Economic Council and the Council of Economic Advisors. Very confusing. Those are two separate organs within the executive branch that advise the president on economic policy. You have forecasters in Congress uh, at the Joint Economic Committee that sort of look at legislation and talk about, and, 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 and figure out sort of what that legislation is going to cost. You have other macroeconomic forecasters uh, within 
the Congressional Budget Office. They're also scoring legislation. They're looking at laws or at proposed laws to figure out how much they're going to cost and what they might do for the economy. They all come from this same tradition of modeling the economy. You take a bunch of inputs, what you think interest rates are going to be, what you think inflation is going to be, what you think tax revenues are going to be. You sort of you, you throw in demographics, you know, whether people are aging or not, how many people are working, all that. You throw that all into a big machine and it spits out a result. Um, so this forecasting ability is incredibly important because we have decided as a democracy that we are paralyzed without the ability to ask a macroeconomist what is going to happen 10 years in the future um, if we pass this legislation. Macroeconomists are outside of government too. They're in think tanks, right? So think of uh, you know when, when your party leaves office in Washington, D.C. and you're a macroeconomist, you don't disappear. Right? You go to a think tank to wait out the interregnum until you get back into power. Again, it's a lot so like- So hold on, hold on, yeah. time out. Uh, for our okay. listeners out there who are not steeped in, in, in the dismal science or whatever it is, <laughs> Janet Yellen was the most powerful uh, banker on the planet prior to this job, whatever interregnum. She was yeah. the chairman of the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, right? And it was Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, who elected to not- have her stay on. He appointed Jerome Powell. Let me take the counterfactual. What would she have done differently with, one, interest rates going into this environment, and two, the the exogenous shock that was the pandemic? What would she have done, in your mind's eye, had Trump kept her on? I don't think she would have done that much differently. I think that's a really important point to make. I think that the way all of these people who were trained by the same people, all these macroeconomists, the way they think about how the economy works has changed dramatically in the last five years. If we go back to 2015, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to get to, I'm going to take a roundabout route. If we think about what was going on in 2015, Janet Yellen was uh, the chair of the Fed. Um, the Fed had had interest rates at zero for th four years, five years, for a long time at the time. You know, so they were trying to do as much as they could to stimulate growth in the economy. At the same time, uh, Washington had started spending right into the recession, but had pulled back because of a bunch of political reasons. So while Washington was pulling back and you saw federal spending drop, 2013, 2014, 2015, the recovery from the Great Recession began to slow. And so economists were talking about this at the Fed, outside the Fed, in Congress. People were talking about why it was that we weren't recovering as fast as we would have expected from, from, from the Great Recession. At the same time, central bankers don't like it when interest rates are at zero. That makes them very uncomfortable. It doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like that what they should be doing. They really culturally don't want to be at zero. They want to get off of zero uh, as quickly as they can. And so Janet Yellen held the rest of the Fed back and said, no, no, let's just wait for as long as we can. We're going to stimulate the, the economy for as long as we can. We're going to keep interest rates at zero for as long as we can. Um, the dam eventually broke. The movement inside the Fed was we have to hike. The reason they said they have to hike at the time felt crazy to me, which was we want to be able to drop interest rates again in the future if there's a recession. So there wasn't a real reason to hike rates. There wasn't really any inflation that they had to ward off. 
And I, you know, when I think back on that, Brendan, I'm thinking about kind of artificial water level management, yeah. like a, you know, a Tennessee Valley authority and everything. Yeah. It's so removed from, if, if you look at the natural economy and, and demand fluctuations and supply fluctuations and joblessness and, and animal spirits of the economy and it, you know, going up and down, that being a natural lake, a natural body of water, this is, to my mind, if you think of the past 20 years, how many of those years since the turn of the century has the Fed kept interest rates at emergency levels, effectively, you know, flood management to the to the max, right? There are times when <laughs> you would exactly you would right. flood the plane with with chief capital. I don't know if this metaphor is tortured, but that's what comes to mind. I mean, people out there in the in the Great West in the mountains are saying, unleash the dam, let the river run free again. And and they're you just don't hear those voices anymore because we are micromanaged to the tune of, of, of trillions of dollars. Not only did the Federal Reserve under um, Bernanke and Yellen take interest rates down to zero, but they conjured up all this money to buy treasuries out there to, to kind of you know push on the string even further. And right now, not only are we at 0% emergency interest rates, yeah. but the Federal Reserve is buying around $80 billion of treasuries each month alongside $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Mm. And that's just having everybody sluice into risk assets. It's like risk is on. And so if you step back from this, and I'm sure a lot of people buttonhole you about it, you have this bifurcation. The economy is feeling weak. You're seeing yeah. that you know receivables and payables and, and rents are overdue and credit delinquencies, and the market's been on fire. The stock market hit an all-time high. Real estate prices are goosing. You're seeing all cash bids for real estate. Is that too simplistic of kind of a diagnostic? So the Fed's using a, a really blunt instrument, and it's helping people who have wealth assets, if not necessarily, you know, everybody else who's worried about paying rent or keeping their jobs. So I think all of that is absolutely right. But I think actually what the Fed was worried about was something that was much simpler. And there's something that they've abandoned, which is way back in 2015, when they raised rates, they were worried about inflation. There is a culture at the Fed that came of age at a time when inflation was something that people worried about. You and I are old enough that we remember at a time when we talked about inflation in our normal lives, right? That was the thing that people worried about. That was the thing that our parents talked about a lot. And that was definitely a thing that policymakers who got trained in the 70s and the 80s thought about, right? So when they raised rates, they were doing it in part because they wanted to have a tool in the future to lower rates again, but in part because they just never know when inflation is going to be to reappear and they want to make sure that it doesn't. That's gone now. Right. So the, the change at the Fed is that they have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for inflation to reappear. And they just aren't as worried about it as they used to. And so the Fed went, went through a review of its tools in the last year and came out of it. And they basically said, we're not going to change that much, but we're just not going to worry about inflation the way we used to. We're going to really focus on, on, on other stuff. And if inflation shows up, we'll deal with it, but we're just not going to be that stressed about it. Okay. So now we're set for a couple things that have changed. Uh, so Janet Yellen, you know, has spent the last three years since she's, or the last two years since she stopped being Fed chair, thinking about all this stuff, talking about all of this stuff. The consensus among economists three years ago, five years ago, was you have to worry about inflation because it's coming back. So you need to make, be ready at the Fed to raise rates to ward off inflation. And the federal government cannot spend too much money. It cannot run up 
debt. It just can't. There was just this arbitrary number that we made up, which was 60% of GDP of in federal debt or 75% of GDP. And economists just knew in their bones, you can't get past that because bad things will happen, right? There'll be too much debt out there. We'll never, uh, they'll, you know, uh, people who, who buy government debt will lose faith in the government's ability to repay. Um, there's this crazy theory that I think we've also abandoned that is that if there's too much government investment, it's going to crowd out private investment. Um, so none of that has showed up. All of that has been disproven. And so you now also have a movement within macroeconomics. This is this, this is this priestly caste within economics of people who make forecasts. Um, they, they aren't that worried about government debt anymore either. A ton of stuff has changed. And so when we look back at the Trump years, all of this was changing during the Trump years. So you had a couple of things going on. One is the Federal Reserve during the Trump years under Yellen and under Powell um, was sort of slowly figuring out that they didn't need to be as worried about inflation as they thought. And for a bunch of technical reasons we won't get into, they started lowering rates. In addition to that, Republicans decided they were just going to spend money. We talk a lot about the tax bill that they passed in 2017, or at the end of 2017, they signed it early in 2018, that lowered taxes. They also spent a bunch of government money, right? It wasn't just lowering taxes. It was also returning spending levels uh, to where they had been in 2012, 2013. Remember, Republicans fighting against Barack Obama um, uh, went through a bunch of technical stuff to reduce government spending or government spending on social programs, government spending on the Pentagon. The second Donald Trump got back into office, they opened the floodgates, right? To use your metaphor, it, we're not just talking about monetary policy. We're not just talking about interest rates. The federal government spent a ton of money, um, you know, into the early years of the Trump administration. All of this. Brent, well, yeah. Brendan Greeley, are we talking, is there a certain American exceptionalism to this about our currency and our debt is that it's the it's the premier redoubt of safety the world over. So even if there is a crisis, even if the United States is the epicenter of the crisis with the subprime crisis, mm -hmm. uh, when when you're in doubt, you pile into the U.S. dollar, you pile into U.S. Treasury assets, and that brings the yield down. So if anything, you're not being punished per, for profligacy because if something goes wrong, people are going to pile into your debt, thereby bringing down the yields. Is that? Is that what kind of the lucky exceptionalism that we have? I think that's one explanation of it. Um, I, I think it's the most likely explanation of it. I'm trying to explain the psychology of the macroeconomists who run policy in America. In 2017-18, we, we lowered interest rates a bit in 2019. In 2017-2018, we spent a ton of money. We lowered taxes. We did everything wrong according to macroeconomic modeling. There should have been inflation. There should have been a loss of confidence in the in America's re ability to repay. And none of it showed up. It was fine. We spent a ton of money. We started to lower interest rates. It was fine. That was a shock to a lot of people. When we talk about sort of what went well under the Trump economy, um, a lot of it was a continuation of trends that happened under Obama, but a lot of it was Congress spending a ton more money rather than pulling back. And a lot of it was 
uh, the Fed not getting in the way and worrying about inflation. I think we don't give enough credit to Janet Yellen and Jay Powell and a lot of other people at the Fed who slowly came to the realization that they did not have to slam the brakes on the economy because they were worried about inflation. They just aren't worried the way they used to. So here we are now at the end of 2020, thank God, by the way, and we've been running this experiment in America that comes exactly to your point where we've been spending a ton of money, where we've been, where we've dropped interest rates and all of the bad things that macroeconomists have said for decades that were going to happen, they didn't happen. So now, now we have Janet Yellen back at treasury. Now we have Congress fighting over the possibility of new stimulus and the priests of Washington, this, this cast, C-A-S-T-E cast of people who sort of give us both literal permission uh, when they score your, 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 your budget to spend money, but also social permission, right? All of these people went to school together. They all went to nice schools together and they're all giving each other permission to spend money. That's massively different than it was four and five years ago. So you have people like Larry Summers, um, who uh, used to be the president of Harvard, is one of the best known economists in America, is the, the pope <laughs> of this priesthood of macroeconomists, just this week giving a presentation where he said, look, Interest rates are low, so if the U.S. borrows money, they're not going to have to pay that much to service the debt. And uh, that's a long-term trend. Interest rates have been going down consistently. And it looks like we can probably spend. And oh yeah, remember how we used to worry that bad things were going to happen if the debt levels in the U.S. got above 60 or 75% of GDP? Well, here we are at 107% of GDP, and we're fine. We're not that worried about it. Japan, by the way, is at 177%. So all of these arbitrary uh, barriers to borrowing money and buying stuff uh, on uh, using the government purse, they've been removed. And I, I, I know I keep coming back to this. The culture of Washington, it's so important to understand that macroeconomists give politicians permission to do stuff. They define the boundaries of what you're allowed to do. They went to fancy schools and they have fancy degrees and they're very smart and they can use numbers and they are numerate in ways that most of the rest of us aren't. And they say you may or you may not do X for reasons that politicians and voters often don't understand at all. That group of people who bestows permission in Washington, D.C. has basically over the last year and even over the last week said, do what you got to do. We're good. Spend money. So I think, you know, so long as the Senate decides it's willing to spend money, and that's more of a political concern than it is a, a, a concern about the macroeconomics of it. We're, there is permission um, to spend a ton of money, right? So that gets us to Janet Yellen now. She is, a, again, another one of the cardinals of, 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 of the priests of macroeconomics. She's run the Council of Economic Advisors. She's been chair of the Fed. Uh, she's now Treasury Secretary. She's been nominated. This is, this is the EGOT of economic policy, right? These are the three biggest positions you can have in America. Nobody's had this before. She's the first one. And so she also has been going through this uh, 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 theological change with the rest of the profession 
where they're not worried about inflation, they're not worried about deficits, and they think that raising or lowering the unemployment rate as far as you can get it is the most important thing you can do. That's massively important, and it's a big difference from just a couple of years ago. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Brendan Greeley. He's a contributing editor at the Financial Times. He previously served as U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. Uh, Brendan and I worked together at Bloomberg Business Week, uh, where he covered economics as a staff writer. He was also on Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio. Uh, he's an affiliate at the William R. Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. And I understand you are writing a book, and we'll get to that uh, later on. But there's a tweet I wanted to share with you uh, from uh, investing writer Ben Carlson. He has this screen grab from the legendary 1987 movie Wall Street. Yeah. And it shows, he says in his tweet, the very first scene in Wall Street is an old guy complaining how it's impossible to make money in the markets because mm-hmm. there's too much cheap money. This movie came out in 1987 when the 10-year treasury was well above 8%. Nice to see some things never change. Uh, for reference, the 10-year treasury is at under 1% right now. It hit a crisis low. I remember when everything was falling apart in March, it fell to less than a half a percent. I I don't, I mean, to take this conversation back, I can't remember when rates were normal. I know when normal, normalcy is thrown around a lot, uh, especially this century with with the new normal, uh, with everything coming out of the dot-com bubble. You have some people out there that are saying that you can't just always use this blunt tool of bringing rates down to nothing, of, of just flooding the plane, that ultimately yeah. there's going to be a huge bill to pay if there's a bubble that you have to extinguish that the Fed doesn't want to extinguish necessarily, if there are after effects or externalities. And right now, it seems to be that kind of, you know, money is free, it's cheap, it's ubiquitous, and the mm-hmm. Fed has telegraphed that it's going to be as such for a while. You know I adore you, but I'm challenging you. I'm going to challenge your premise. I don't think that low interest rates are a policy decision. I think they're a fact of life. Mm. I think right now, given how much savings there is in the world, right? So markets work. If if there's not a ton of money saved up in the world to be invested in new projects, then the little money that is saved up is going to be precious. It's going to command a high return when it's invested. there is what Ben Bernanke said in 2005, I think was the year he said this, um, a glut of savings, right? There are people all around the world, uh, not just in the US, in China, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in Russia, um, people have saved money. Now that money's got to do something. Um, it, it, it doesn't get turned into cash and sit underneath beds. It has to go into some sort of financial asset. And so when you have a ton of people saving money, saved money isn't that precious anymore. It's not going to command a high return because there's a ton of it. So that is a trend that is outside the purview of the Federal Reserve or any other central bank to fix or do anything about. The more people save, the less valuable that savings is going to be. Um, There are a couple reasons going on. Inequality is one of them. Uh, if the wealthy are making more money, they're more likely to put it away than they are to spend it. There are only so many Lamborghinis you can buy, but there's also some demographic stuff going on. Uh, people are getting older, uh, all over the developed world. Um, and older people save more because they're worried about the future. There's also an argument that, that, um, that there's just more uncertainty right now. We don't know what's going to happen over the next 10 years. All of those things add up to people are saving more. Again, when people save more, 
that savings commands a lower return because there's just a lot of it. It's just not that special anymore to have saved up money. So now when we're talking about the Fed uh, and easy money, the Fed can raise or lower interest rates, you know, within a band, 1%, 2%. I don't know exactly what the tolerance is around what the interest rate would be. We don't know the natural rate of interest. There, there, are, there are attempts to uh, to, to calculate it. Um, it's all angels on the head of a pen. It's still just a guess, but I, I don't think that what we're doing right now is, um, flooding the markets, uh, with cheap money. I think there's a ton of money in the markets already. There's not much the fed that can do. However, there is something that I completely agree with you about, which is that the way we think about monetary policy raises the value of, of, of assets. If you have anything, a house, an investment vehicle, anything, um, uh, when the Fed pumps money into the market, those things become more valuable. And the Fed has recognized this. They know that the policy tool that they use, they basically, uh, right now, they, they buy treasuries from 25 large banks, and then they credit those large banks with reserves at the Fed. A reserve at the Fed, it's a, basically a deposit. If the, the Fed is a bank, like any other bank, you can have a deposit at the Fed. Very few uh, institutions are able to do that. Um, banks can do that. Uh, a bunch of uh, foreign governments can do that. But that money is the most valuable kind of money there is in the world. They, you know, the economists will talk about uh, high-powered money, right? This is this is different than a deposit held at your lower at, at your local bank. This is stuff that that only people in finance use, that only foreign central banks use. And so the Fed has created a lot more of that. Um, reserves the Fed have spiked. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you know they're up by the trillions of dollars. That's a big deal. That's a shift. Um, the problem is the Fed is slowly learning that you can create a ton of new reserves at the Fed, and that doesn't necessarily trickle out into the rest of the economy. And that's been a surprise to them. Their assumption was if you if you buy treasuries, this is U.S. debt uh, off of off of all the largest banks and then credit them with reserves, they will find a way um, because their balance sheets are so flush with this incredibly high-powered money to, to sort of make other loans. They'll, they'll, they'll figure out a way to do it. That hasn't happened. So you, you talked earlier about pushing on a string. The Fed is really realizing that its, it's, it's basic set of tools which is creating this high-powered Federal Reserve money isn't necessarily connected to the rest of the economy. Right, so you can create a bunch of high-powered money, and somebody who is making a business loan somewhere out in America isn't necessarily going to say, "Oh, there's a ton of reserves now at the Fed. I, I I feel more confident I can make this loan." Right? They're actually looking at the underlying fundamentals, and the Fed can't change uh, the underlying fundamentals. They can't go out and force banks to make small business loans. They just can't. They can't force banks to make car loans or mortgages. They just, that's the bank's decision on how confident it's feeling. And so the Fed- Well, help me help me get into the mindset of a bank right now. If you're a yeah. B of A, one of these things, mm -hmm. the, you're getting access to this incredible window with superpower money, as you describe. Mm -hmm. So what's your motivation? If it costs next to nothing, you should be able to turn it around and capture- a spread of, of several percentage points. It, it seems like you're given a license to print money, but they don't want to do this. I mean, what, they want to put it out somewhere else in the treasury curve? What are you going to invest in? This is the problem. We 
And again, I want you to explain it. Explain it for our listeners. Because okay. So this if is. If you're out there, if you're out there putting that superpowered money out there, you should be able to. It's like me. If I have all the money in the world, or, or you get into the mind of a loan shark, right? And somebody's really desperate, but there's a high credit risk and a high kneecapping risk. Yeah. Well, if you're getting money for nothing from the Fed, effectively, and you just have to clear one, two, three percentage points, it shouldn't be that difficult, should it? So. One of the things that we learned uh, during the pandemic is that the actual financial contacts with all of the little businesses that make up the real economy are held by either local banks or no banks. When we talk about the big banks uh, that, that really sort of hold, it's really just four large banks that hold most of the excess reserves in the system. Those banks might have relationships with a couple large corporations in the real economy, right? So they might be able to extend their credit lines there. That, that, that's possible. But far and away, the most loan activity going to small businesses is coming from small banks. And then there's a ton of small businesses that have, I was shocked to find this out. I don't remember the percentages because it was about eight months ago that I looked this up, but a shocking number that it's sort of in the 20 to 30% of small businesses don't have a relationship with the bank at all, right? They're just doing all cash. And if they have a line of credit, it's with a family member who's got some savings somewhere and you know they'll, they'll pull it into the business and then pull it back out. That, that's how they're banking. Um, so... What we discovered was that when the Fed and Congress decided that together they were going to uh, make a ton of loans available at the beginning of the pandemic, the bottleneck was not the supply of money. It was the ability of a bunch of small banks all over America to underwrite these loans. Right? You can't just sh literally shovel money out the door. You have to have a relationship with someone. You have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. All those take human beings and it takes relationships. And um, th that, that stuff's really difficult. It just takes time. And so what the Fed is discovering is it has connections to large banks that have, that have connections to large companies. It doesn't really have connections to all of the small businesses all over America. And that's a Sort of, it's a massive. We're talking about like you know, barber shops, uh, small grocers, all these things. Um, there, there's no direct connection from how they think about money, how they think about taking risks, how they think about borrowing money, their relationships with their own bankers, the, the connections between those people and those businesses, and the Federal Reserve is. It's not even like you're pushing on a string. To use your metaphor from before, the string isn't there. There's a break in this. So isn't this something that would be so ripe for disintermediation by the internet? I mean, I would take you on this tangent. If the banks yeah. are too, I, I think about them as being too big to care. Mm -hmm. The major money center banks, I've kind of coined that before. I never got a, a nickel in royalties for it. But And if there's a disconnect in information, if the Federal Reserve is too prioritized with these major mega regionals and the national banks, Shouldn't there be a, a, a third party out there, something like an Airbnb type thing that would match people with excess savings with the small business? And they're there just, Brendan, they seem to be niche players, even coming out of the Great Recession last time. And we read, we read about the upcoming disruption of banking and all this stuff happening, but it's still, again, we're in a financial crisis again, and we're talking about the banks not loaning and that mm -hmm. the Fed doesn't understand small business and small business cost of capital. Yeah. You know, I'm amazed that with everything else that happened uh, with Uber, with Airbnb, with the disruption of old state industries, yeah. that this hasn't happened in banking yet. Well, it kind of is, to be honest. Um, 
the, uh, you know, what we know about the lending habits of, uh, of small businesses or the bar, excuse me, but the borrowing habits of small businesses, online lenders, uh, have, uh, spiked in the last, uh, three or four years. The problem is people don't have great relationships with online lenders. So the likelihood that you'll get access to capital is very high, much easier to do that than it is to go open an account at a bank. Um, but the serving is servicing is awful. Uh, you know, you don't feel like you get a good response afterwards. If there's ever a problem with a loan, it's very difficult to find someone that matters for people. Those are real world frictions. You don't, you can't just say, okay, well the interest rate is lower and they'll, they'll give me this loan and I'm good. Right there. There's a reason why small businesses have, you know, or medium sized businesses have relationships with bankers. Um, you know, you might need a line of credit. You might need to draw down a little extra on your line of credit. You know, you want to have a relationship with these people so that you can figure out exactly how you use capital efficiently. And all of this stuff is, all right, so let me step back, back for a second. Um, what is money right now in the United States? I, I have been, so I've been writing a book about the history of the dollar. And I have been shocked sort of casually talking to people about it when they ask me what I'm working on. How many people still think that money in the United States is backed by gold and silver at Fort Knox? Um, money in this economy, and this has been true for 40 years, arguably 70. Money is credit. When a bank makes a loan, it is producing new money. We have private money creators in America. They're all over. They are the commercial banks. The Fed has some influence over them. It can encourage them to make loans. It can discourage them from making loans, but its influence over them is imperfect. Very difficult to get banks to do exactly what you want them to do. And so what we have in America is a system of private money creation. And it's very difficult to tell private money creators what to do. And so we're, we're, we're at a point where when interest rates were higher, when you and I were younger, um, in the, in, in the eighties, in the nineties, the fed could raise or lower interest rates, uh, roughly around, you know, a, 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 again, a band 2%, 3%, uh, above or below where they might've been otherwise and have an effect on policy. So that effect has run out. So the Fed is figuring out that the way money is created in the United States, again, when a bank makes a loan, it is creating new money. We just don't have any policy purchase on all these people who are creating money. That's a real problem. Hmm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Brendan Greeley. He's a contributing editor for the Financial Times. We're talking about all things economic, COVIDnomics, the, the unpre- you know, I hate using unprecedented, but... This year is so tired, and we're trying to get past the corner, and I'm, I'm at a loss for metaphors, of which I'm typically not. But I have to ask you, uh, there's also a lot of historian in you, and the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Federal Reserve was created in 1913, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, and that was just a few years before this great pandemic. And you are correct. Have you gone back and looked at the reaction to what happened in 1918 and studied, and maybe there was a toolkit for them to use for this to happen again in 2020? I think the better toolkit to look at is what they did during the depression and, uh, and the second world war. So, uh, you know, the fed was relatively new. We sort of, we, we still had to figure out how to use the fed, uh, in, in, in the years after it was, um, after it was created. Uh, and we passed a bunch of laws in 1935, uh, that reshaped finance in America. 
Um, we, I, th- I think that was when we created federal deposit insurance, right? So that you knew that once you deposited money at a bank, that money was never going away. It was absolutely guaranteed even if the bank failed. That was massively important uh, because it meant that you could that, that you didn't you didn't have to do credit underwriting when you made a deposit. You didn't have to worry about whether your bank was going to go under or not. Um, that was massively important. Um, but something happened during that time. Mariner Eccles was the chairman of the Fed. In the 30s and the 40s, uh, he's he's the person who the, the the Fed building in Washington D.C. on Constitution Avenue is named after, right? People always talk about going to the Eccles Building to get the, uh, uh, you know, to 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 talk to important people. Sure. So Mariner Eccles uh, did something that we now think is beyond the pale, which is the Fed uh, at the end of the recession and through World War II went to Treasury and said. You make debt when the America uh, when, when America makes debt, it uh, you know it, it issues treasury bonds. Uh, we'll buy them. We guarantee you that we will buy them. We will we will buy so many of them that we will be able to manage your cost of debt. We will make sure that you can continue to borrow money. And we will do this for as long as you have to fight fascism. So you go out and you make tanks, you make uh, uh, carriers, you do whatever you got to do. Um, and, and we're going to be over here in this building. Oh, actually the building didn't exist yet. What am I talking about? Well, we, we're going to be over here and we're going to be buying, uh, all the debt that you need to issue and we'll put it on our balance sheet and we'll figure the rest out later. So, um, in 1951, uh, there's this famous moment in financial history called the treasury fed accords where, um, in the middle of the Korean war, the fed went to treasury and they said, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. You guys are on your own. Good luck. And so that is seen now by central bankers. Again, this is a culture. This is these, these are people who all work together. They all trade together. They talk to each other. They publish together. It is a coherent culture. That moment is seen as the Fed declaring its independence from Treasury. It is seen as an unambiguous good. You want central, you want central bank policy to be independent from politics because God knows what's going to happen. If the politicians get control of the money supply, they'll spend too much. They'll create uh, inflation. It'll be a catastrophe. What we've missed in the assumption that central banks should be independent is this time when the fed and the treasury got together and they said, we have an existential crisis. We have a massive global war on two massive far-flung fronts. We need to arm people. We need to uh, pay for research. We need to pay for massive ships. Um, We're just going to do it. We're going to figure this out. You issue the debt. We're going to buy it. We'll put it on all our balance sheet. We'll figure it out later. And so we have lost the ability in America and, and worldwide to think about what happens when a central bank and a treasury department work together to combat an existential threat. Now, I would argue that uh, the arrival of climate change, not the possibility of it, but we're of course talking about it happening now in the present, is a is 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 an existential threat on par with global fascism in the forties. Not everybody agrees with that, but if you think that's true, then there is a remedy that we are culturally unable to think about because we have decided that central banks absolutely have to be independent from the treasury department. And that wasn't always the case. Uh, And so I think that historically we have to remember how we've dealt with things in the past. Now, there were things that were different. 
Um, if you were, if you were a wealthy person in the forties, you had one safe asset. It was treasuries. You, you couldn't move your money offshore, right? It, right now, financiers, you know, they can buy, uh, they could buy bunds, uh, in Germany, right? We couldn't do that in the forties. We were fighting Germany, right? It wasn't, that wasn't an investment vehicle for us. Uh, so that, that was, you, you really, you couldn't go anywhere else. So it was very easy to say wealthy people. You've, you've got these investment vehicles. You, you buy these. We're going to buy them. This is how. This is the safe asset in America. We're going to manage the cost of this one thing. Now there are safe assets elsewhere. Um, you can buy Japanese debt. You can do a bunch of other things, right? So, so money might move offshore if we decide uh, that we're going to do it that way. That that's that's I think the most significant one, the difference between now and the 1940s. But I think that we lack in historical memory and imagination of what can be done. If we see a threat and decide we've just got to buy a bunch of stuff to stop that threat. <laughs> you know, indeed, you have Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin urging Congress mm -hmm. uh, this week to approve COVID-19 relief funds without uh -huh. further delay. I mean, we are in a lame duck period. President Trump just ha signed off on this long, winding press conference. We don't know <laughs> if he's going to leave peacefully by January 20th. We don't know if he has a disincentive to grease the wheels economically for yep. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden. But we are in this weird position where it's happened before, where the Federal Reserve chair, who's supposed to be independent, even though he gets a ton of browbeating from the White House, is saying, guys, I've done everything I can do here. I need Congress to get exact mm -hmm. together. People are desperate for this. He indeed, he said, we're trying to get as many people across this bridge that we built as we can. Without more assistance, he said, people will lose their homes and small businesses will fail. Quote, you could lose parts of the economy, which would slow any recovery next year. So what do you do with all of these moving parts right now? We're in a parlous period. It's a lame duck period, but you feel that several cliffs are ahead of us, fiscal cliffs, unemployment expiration cliffs, uh, you know, foreclosure moratorium cliffs, and the chief central banker in the world's largest economy is telling Congress, which is in no cooperative move, to really cut some checks. Yeah, but there's also a long-term fight going on between the Fed and Congress. So um, the, the Bernanke said this. He was the, the 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 chair of the Fed before Yellen. Yellen said this. Uh, re recently, Bernanke and Yellen together said this. Um, they, they've been saying for a long time, look, you, you guys have to relearn how to do fiscal policy in America. You guys have to be able to figure out how to solve problems by writing government checks at the right time in the right ways for the right stuff. You guys have to do this. We've just stopped doing that in America. We're not very good at it anymore. And so the central banks don't want to act alone. They don't want to be in charge of the economy. They don't want to get in trouble for doing the wrong thing. And so they're very wary of going out and doing something without making sure that Congress acts as well, that Congress goes out on a limb, that Congress makes a political decision. It's a little bit like um, if there's ever anything in the fridge, and I'm not sure whether it's still good or not, I'll pull it out and I'll smell it and I'll make a decision. But I will also hand it to my wife for the following reason. If we decide to eat it, I want her to be involved as well in that decision. I want the decision to be everybody's fault. So that's what the Fed is doing, right? The Fed is saying, we're going to take this risk, but you got to come take this risk with us. So yeah, of course the Fed could do a ton more, 
right? The Fed could put every mortgage in America on its balance sheet. I, I, I mean, sorry, that, that's a big broad statement, but the, I'm, I'm giving you examples of things that the Fed could buy. The Fed has the power to decide what assets it wants to buy. It could do that, right? It would need permission from Congress. It would have to go to Congress and it would have to say, we're going to use uh, a, a certain power that we have. You've got to agree in order for us to do this. We're going to buy the following assets. But if you can think of anything in America that's an asset, you know, uh, homes that are about to be figuratively and literally underwater because of climate change, right? They, they, they could go out and they could buy those assets. Um, but they're not proposing that. They're not even thinking about that. And it's because they in a way, Congress and or the Fed is playing a game of chicken with Congress, and it wants Congress to act. And when it says we're at the limits of our abilities to buy assets, we're done here, we're out of tools, what they're doing is they're showing Congress they don't have their hand on the wheel. They have no ability to steer away that it, that that if Congress doesn't do something, it's going to crash the economy. I don't think that's true. I think the Fed can do a ton of stuff that it's not doing right now. But uh, Congress needs to be forced to act in order to act. So I think when we talk about does the Fed have more tools, could the Fed do more, what we're missing is that the Fed wants Congress to do more so it doesn't have to. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Brendan Greeley, contributing editor at the Financial Times. In the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, Mr. Greeley, I'd love for you to look into your crystal ball. How are we going to be looking back at the year 2020. Certainly there there may be more than a month or two of histrionics left, but I'm struck, you know, one thing metaphorically, uh, I live in Richmond and there's a there was a thriving Starbucks right by the University of Richmond. And I always thought that this was a, you know, triple A mm-hmm. uh, prime real estate thing, pays its rents, it's kind of a peerless anchor tenant and everything, and it's gone. It just is it was gone in 60 days. And I look at that every day. Mm-hmm. There was a homeless person in front of it recently. And is this all temporary? Is 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 it potentially that you know this cafe culture or retail culture, or are we going to see certain things? Yes, you've read a lot about everything else that was accelerated by several years: teleconferencing technology, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the the delivery services, contactless deliveries, um, uh, disintermediation. I mean, e-commerce and Amazon, mm-hmm. but. Is there a possibility that we'll just look back at this as kind of an aberration, that we're going to kind of snap back and we'll go back to old consumer behaviors? I don't know. It depends on whether those uh, silver cylinders that are clearly being placed around the world by aliens have any meaning or not. Um, uh, I think that there are are two ways to look at this, good and bad. Let's, uh, Let's go with the bad first. Starbucks is going to be fine. Right, they they've got a deep enough balance sheet. They're one of those big companies. You know, we were talking earlier. You know, some big national and global companies have relationships with big banks. They can get lines of credit. They'll be okay. Um, so you know, uh, Starbucks has a big enough balance sheet, and they have relationships with banks that have big balance sheets. The, the, they, they they will figure out a way to reexpand. Right, the lungs will expand again after having contracted during this pandemic for Starbucks. That's not true for a ton of small businesses. So the smaller the business, the less likely it is to ever come back. I do think that we're going to see, um, you know, the consolidation of a bunch of stuff we love uh, into a bunch of uh, a bunch of corporations we're less affectionate about. I, I don't want to cast aspersions. I don't want to be anti-corporate. There's plenty of uh, plenty of good reasons to have a big national corporation, but we are definitely going to see consolidation 
Um, if you have a big balance sheet, if you're a big national company, you will make it through this just fine. If you don't, you won't. It'll be very difficult to come back from this. Um, Economists talk about uh, scarring. You know, if a depression lasts long enough, if a recession lasts long enough, then 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 you get uh, consequences that you can't undo. Um, people lose skills. People lose hope. You know, people leave the workforce and they decide they're not coming back. They decide, okay, well, we've got one earner and we'll just make a little less and that's okay. Well, let me, what's going to happen to all of the idled office space? For example, oh. you know, if I take you into center, central DC or midtown Manhattan right now and the mm-hmm. secondary and tertiary effects, I mean, that's something that, as you know, can become systemic. I'm sure the Federal Reserve has its eyes on it. At some point, this hits the bank's balance sheets as non-performing assets. I mean, does that keep you up at night? Uh, I don't know, man. Like, yes, but but maybe it's a good thing, right? So let's go to the second part of this, the good part of this. Um, one of them is we've been wondering for a long time why there aren't any productivity gains, right? There's been a question that's been, that's been vexing economists and policymakers, why it is that people aren't getting any better at making products. And there, there are a lot of theories about that. We don't have the time to get into them. Um, but one of the things that that the president of your Richmond Fed has said is that there are investments in productivity enhancements during recessions, right? People have to learn how to do uh, more with less. Uh, And so coming out of this, it's very likely that we're going to see a ton of productivity gains because people are going to, you know, we saw, uh, you know, there was very little business investment over the course of the last five, 10 years. Um, There was some investment in software. Um, it's entirely possible that there's going to be, I haven't looked at the d- data recently, but, uh, you know, if, if again, uh, Barkin is right, we, we're, we're going to see a big spike in productivity after this. That's a good thing. We'll be better at making things with less. That's, that, that, that's a good thing for economic growth, but also, you know, something's got to happen with that property. We have a crisis in America for affordable housing. It has been true for a long time that if you are a builder and if you are a bank, you want to build commercial properties. The return is higher. But what if that's not true anymore? What if the returns for housing for normal people reappear? Uh, um, You know, look, when we stopped using horses, we turned carriage houses in New York into apartments, right? This stuff moves on. It turns over. Um, there is a project in Florida that I was looking at in Naples that I was looking at, uh, right before the pandemic that I thought was fascinating, which is that, um, there, there was a dearth of, uh, affordable housing in Naples. Um, and there were also a bunch of abandoned strip malls and, uh, some local banks were trying to figure out how to turn this space in strip malls you know, that was already an approved site, right? It wasn't a green field. It was a brown field. You, 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 there was a bunch of stuff that you can do when a building already exists. I mean, they were thinking about turning empty retail space into affordable housing. That, that could be good. That's a transformation we need. That's not a bad thing. That will take a long time. Um, but I, 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 my answer to your question is, um, all of this empty office space, I think you're right. I think it's not coming back and like, great. Let's turn it into something that's useful that we've kind of needed for a long time. Brendan Greeley, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'd love to hear about the book you're working on. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, plug away. Do you know how old the dollar is? Do you know the Muffin Man? Tell me. It is 500 years old. The first dollar was a silver coin struck in 1520 in Bohemia. So 
the short version uh, of, of, of what I'm working on is that when we think about the derivation of the word dollar, it comes from the, the Dutch uh, dollar, D-A-L-E-R, which is itself comes from the German taller, which comes from Joachim's tall. Tall is German for valley. So it, it, it is a coin that came from the valley of St. Joachim. So in the past, we've treated this as a linguistic connection. Right? We just happen to call our money the dollar. But uh, Josh Greenberg is a, is a historian I've been talking to recently, and he's looked at a lot of uh, bills in the early republic, bank bills. So it used to be that banks issued their own currency, right? You didn't walk around with a bunch of Federal Reserve physical bills in your pocket. You had bank bills. Sure. A lot of these early bank bills had do- had silver coins on them. They had They had cuts of these coins pressed into the dollars. Um, you and I would understand that now in contemporary finance as a peg. Some countries peg their currency to other countries' currencies. So our currency was pegged to this global standard of a silver coin called the dollar. So we didn't, we didn't create the dollar zone. We didn't create the American dollar. We adopted an existing currency Fascinating. and we made it ours. And so, um, uh, what has been true, I think, over the course of the history of the dollar is that all of the various countries that have controlled the dollar it hasn't necessarily been good for them. Um, at the time of the American Revolution, uh, the country that controlled the supply of the dollar was the Spanish Empire. The dollar was really bad for the Spanish Empire. They created this silver um, uh, and it, it almost none of it went to peninsular Spain, right? There were merchants who paid for it to be dug out of uh, out of mountains in uh, Imperial Spain in Latin America, and that went to Dutch financiers and Genoese financiers, and it got turned into these round coins. And the round coins went over the Baltic and over the Mediterranean, and they all ended up in China. I cannot wait to read this book. Do you have a working title? <laughs> I, oh man, it's called the Almighty Dollar. What else would I call it? And when does it drop? Uh, oh God, uh, I hope at the end of next year. Ugh, history is really hard to write. You know, Brendan Greeley, you're the kind of guy that if you're redoing your house, you would use kind of vastly depreciated, inflated Weimar marks as insulation in the attic just for giggles because that's the kind of guy you are. And I love I love finally having you on the show. We were together at Bloomberg Business Week uh, for a minute or two. Uh, Brendan Greeley is a contributing editor at the Financial Times. You can follow him on the Twitters at... Oh, uh, B.H. Greeley, G-R-E-E-L-E-Y. That's my Twitter, B.H. Greeley. Sir, you are welcome on this show at any time. Please come back. And I will come back and back. Thank you. Full disclosure, this episode was edited by Claire Morgan. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. We are on NPR One, a most handy app, and on Spotify. We're also now in Northern Virginia and in much of D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. And in Asheville, North Carolina, on WPVM-FM 103.7. Stay tuned for more station news. And follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.